Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Whoa, Rick, check this guy out. He's really, he's got a lot going on for him. Silence, Morty. Hey, everybody, this is your good friend, Dr. David Broden from down here in the North Star Recording Studio, where it is a brisk 77 degrees tonight. You know, it's cooled down outside. We had that hot streak here in Wisconsin of 85 degrees and humid for quite a while. But, uh, but yeah, fall is definitely in the air. That's the way it happens once we get to August. Talking about fall... Winter is right around the corner. Winter crab boat season, Alaskan crab. You've probably seen the TV shows. Well, today we're gonna talk about much more than what you've seen kind of scrubbed through and sanitized on on the different TV versions of Alaskan crabbing, crabbing, which are terrifying in their own regard. We're going to get firsthand account from um, uh, Robert uh, Cheney. He's he's gonna tell us some fascinating stories that that, uh, you're gonna be like, oh my God. Oh my God, this is crazy stuff. So we'll I'll tell you what, you know, Rob, Rob's become a friend of the show, become a, a, a friend of mine. Um, he, he, he was a pro snowboarder and, and is it, he had a, a case where he broke, I think a fibula and a tibula, and then uh, he sawed it off, right? He, he sawed off the cast so he could get back on the crab boat for crab season. Um, started a company, a very successful company pouring concrete. So, you know, uh, in Canada, all these universities, all these places, articulate concrete. So just, you know, someone that is, has taken and continued to, to kind of push the edge, right? But today we're going to focus a lot on these, these, these crabbing stories because um, when, he, when you're out in a crab stand, it's, it's a long time. So the one stint was 122 days. And we know that once people get beyond like 90 days, they kind of crack, you know, out in continuous chaos. So we're going to talk about that. Um, but everybody, first of all, hey, uh, thank you to Mickey Bus, uh, to Joe, to Bacon, others in the chat room. Um, I want you to, to, to know we're in for an absolutely great show tonight. Thank you to the 405 Media out of Los Angeles, California for syndicating the show, our good friends in LA. And hey, if you haven't bought this book, I'm going to move it over here, School of Bears. And guess what? It floats. We threw this in the Bering Sea. It did float for nine hours. I'm not sure if you can actually grab onto it and survive but the book does float. I'm just making that up. I don't know if it floats or not, but you should still get it. So it's good reading. Be, be great reading. Like if you're, if you're out on a crab boat and you have a little bit of time to yourself, pass it around. Our guest, Rob, Rob, Travis Cheney. Rob, welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast. Oh my goodness. I think we lost him. This is, this is not good. I think he froze. Well, anyway, um, that was a short show. Stick with me here. I'm going to bring him back. All right. Yeah, Rob, Rob, uh, the boat got a little rocky, but don't worry. We'll we'll bring him back here in just a moment of the Safety Doc podcast. So, the oh, there he is. Yeah. Look at this guy. He's back. Away. Sorry about that. Something happened. Yeah, the boat tipped over. That's he right. His way out. Starboard side. His, <laughs> he kept his hat. All right. No. Um. So, so Rob, tell us about yourself. I'm 39 years old. I'm a businessman uh, now, and uh, I'm a recovered addict, so I'm sober, proud to be sober. 
And uh, thank you. Yeah. And I've spent a lot of time my whole life doing hard jobs. Um, I appreciate the, you know, the hyping me up there saying, saying all those nice things about me, but the, the pro snowboarding was back in the day. Uh, so I, I haven't been a pro snowboarder uh, since I was 25, but I did, did push those limits pretty hard. I went to high school in Whistler, uh, Whistler, BC. And so that's a pretty extreme spot and uh, managed to get a couple hundred, couple hundred days a year on the mountain. Uh, yeah. And then I, I ended up um, working at a snowboard camp every, every summertime as well where we had a, a good posse of pro snowboarders that would come from all over the world. So I was blessed to pretty much snowboard year round for about five years. And um, along with that came some good injuries and uh, that's what led me to King Crab Fishing. So I'm going to bring up an image right here that you sent uh, snowboarding. Uh, what's happening in this photo? <laughs> that is a rainbow rail and uh, that's actually a front side board slide. And that was actually only taken a couple of years ago, I still um, can snowboard to that level, but not the level that the pros do now uh, with the big hundred foot jumps. So okay. yeah, it's still my, and all my children, I've got five children and four of them are avid snowboarders. Wow. Too little. So, so let's, um, so let's, let's begin with that story of, of snowboarding. Um, tell us, yeah, how you got into that on a, on a professional level, um, the amount of practice, the dangerous, you know, side of that. I know you broke a tib and a fib and um, let's, let's get into that initial thirst um, to kind of push the limits and for uh, adrenaline and, and these risky, um, you know, type of activities. Well, on uh, Vancouver Island, there's a little mountain called Mount Washington and it's uh, pretty much mid Island geographically, but it's, with our low pressure systems, we're able to get 20 to 40 feet of snow a year. So um, weekends and spring break were spent snowboarding. And when I first started snowboarding, they had one snowboard in the rental shop. And okay. there was maybe 10 of us on the mountain. So we watched the evolution of snowboarding, so to speak. And then when I was 15, the mountain sent my parents a letter saying I wasn't welcome there anymore. <laughs> no, Rob, <laughs> no, what happened? Too. Too many eyes, so we still have that letter. Too many clip passes, and just... <laughs> so I, uh, wow. I left my hometown and I went up to Whistler and started my snowboard career. Picked up Ride Snowboards as a sponsor and a few other ones, and that was the beginning of that. Uh, I did have a lot of injuries through that career, um, lots of broken wrists and broke my sternum, um, bit my tongue pretty bad one time. Wore a helmet, so it was pretty kind of the evolution was helmet helmets was coming out and we were cognitive that I was wise. So my mom was pretty good at making sure we wore a helmet. So I dodged the head injury, thank God. Right. Okay, yeah. Problem. But um so that's where snowboarding kind of for me went was to Whistler Big Mountain riding right away. Then uh the Camp of Champions, the fourth summer, I we had built a pretty big super highway there and I had uh, overshot and landed the trick, but broke my landed super hard and broke my tib fib. So I ended up with a leg cast middle of end of June. And then I kind of told myself that that was it for pro snowboarding for me because I was. Uh, so how old were you when you said this is enough for me with a pro snowboarding? 23. Okay. Yeah. So, 
All right. So for those of you just joining us, um, live from Vancouver, uh, we have um, Robert uh, Travis Cheney is telling us about, you know, early snowboarding in his career. And, and we're going to get into Alaskan uh, crab boating here in a little bit. So, um, hey, hit that subscribe, hit the thumbs up if you haven't already, um, and let your friends and family know about, about this show. So uh, one of the, the, the compelling reasons to talk about um, crab boating, and we're, I'm going to have, have um, Rob back on, on the show. At that point, uh, in a future show, we're going to be talking about a company that he has, Rooftop Life Raft. And Rooftop Life Raft is a company focused on uh, surviving during floods uh, with, with rooftop um, and different raft systems. We'll get into that in, in a little bit, but that's its own that's its own show. But um, so we, we know, right, we've talked about it many times on the show that there gets to be this finite voltage point in people. And it's about 90 days of chaos. And once you hit that, people typically start to crack, right? They, they, they have cognitive dissonance. They lose touch with reality. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm studying and I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, first of all, uh, if you are a crab boater, right? If you're on a crab boat per the Bureau of Labor Statistics, it is the number one most dangerous job. It is the most lethal job out there. Um, and you did this back in 2007. I've I've done some research. Um, there's been additional safety measures put in place since then, but like back in 2007 would be more technically dangerous than it would have be today. Um, so how do you how do you survive when you're out for example in 2007 122 days, where you know, you're on a boat. You're, you don't have anywhere else that you can go. It's a very demanding job. You were sharing with me, Rob, and, and tell us about this. When you sign the contract to go on the boat, the contract says there is a 100% chance that you'll be injured. So tell me tell me about how you got into um, crab boating and, and that kind of that first, you know, getting that contract, the, the risk you knew that you're going to take on. Yeah. No, cool. Um, in 03, I had that leg cast and, uh, I wanted to make a chunk of money and I knew that, uh, I'd heard King Crabbing was a spot. So I called, I called the Baron off. I called them every day. Um, and on September 8th, they, uh, they said fly out to Dutch. So I flew right into Anchorage and then into Dutch Harbor, which is on the tip of the Aleutian Islands. Um, and I got on the boat and met all everybody there. And um, it was a dry boat, supposedly, but guys had a bottle. So we took the drink in there that night and um, I got told some stories. And I snuck off the boat in the morning at like six in the morning. And one of the deals is, is like you got to pay for your own. If you quit, you got to pay for your own accommodate or airfare home and all that. And so the first mate rolled up on me and I was hoofing my way back to the airport and he was like, yo, what's going on? I'm like, there's no way I'm doing that. There's no way I'm going. Um, and he talked me into it. He was like, yo, we need you. So, um, and he gave all the other deckhands shit for scaring me. And then that was the beginning of that trip. Um, it was. So, so they're scaring you. So what are they telling you? Like you're brand new to this. And what are the stories they're telling you that are, that are freaking you out where you're almost not going to do this? Well, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's a very tenacious job. So when you get pulled with, there's 28 guys on the boat, there's a six man deck crew. Um, 
and the, the, the greenhorns get put with the, with the head deckhand. So they're pretty rough on you uh, right off the hop. And uh, so they'll tell you stuff like, I mean, okay, during open season, there's 300 boats catching 18 million pounds um, and uh, it's go time. So there's a buzzer. You'll just, you'll be head down working and there's a buzzer and each time that buzzer hits you got to grab onto whatever you're near and you know if you're you got a good skipper he's making sure that you're not you're not you're not getting pitched too much but sometimes you know something the size of a nice chunk the size of a refrigerator will come on board and it's going across like a hockey puck taking guys out so there's a lot that can go on really quick um you know there's there's working with the boat when you throw things you know against the roll obviously and um the scupper holes are nine feet long and uh, about 16 inches. So when that boat rolls, a dump truck load of water will come on and quickly dissipate as that boat goes back up. So there's a lot of action. It's kind of like, it's kind of like, it's like really live hockey, you know, with lots going on all the time. Um, sure. You're, you're guaranteed always, you got two knives on your, on your waist. Lots of guys carry one. I carried two just because, uh, didn't take long. My second, second trip, I carried two knives all the time, just cause in case you're, you're tied up, you need to make, make sure you can do something quick, but yeah, it's, uh, the guys who got hurt were, uh, were, were definitely bigger. Um, and there's a lot of close calls every shift. Wow. So tell me, so tell me, um, tell me about this contract that, uh, you know, that you had right. to sign. <laughs> Right. Sorry, you asked me that and I jumped subject. Oh, no, no, this is great. This is, yeah. Uh, so they, what they do is they say, okay, you're going to sign a 90-day contract. Um, hypothetically, if you're going to get 0.05% of the, the share, they're going to give you 0.2%. Um, and upon completion of the 90 days will be that other 0.55%, say at 0.75. So you really are locked into the morale being, you know, if you're at 60 days and morale is way down and they're setting back and you're not catching anything, you're locked in. If you, if you go in on that second trip, say at 60 days, it's generally 30 or 35 days to fill up the boat and you say, screw it. I quit. You're only getting that 0.2%. Um, so they've got you coming and going, right? I mean, I came in at 80, 80 something days uh, I think I only had four or five days left on my contract. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, was kind of itching to go home. You know, I had a baby. I didn't have a baby on that trip. I had a baby the next trip. But nonetheless, I was ready to go home. And they kept me. They said, no, you're under contract. And they kept me for one more trip. So as far as the boat goes, they're there to make money. Wow. You know, they don't care about your morale. So it's, you're telling me. Um, so I, tell me about the first, you know, maybe like week on the boat, what was new? What did you have to learn? What, what were some things where you're like, Oh my God, I almost got taken out by this chunk of ice that came across. I mean, how, how well, they, crazy they, does it get? Like, they'll do stuff like uh, greenhorns. They call you. Um, so you work your shift to be 16 hours on and then eight off. And in that eight off, you got to eat and do all your laundry and clean yourself. And, uh, so that first two weeks, they're pretty hard on you. They want to break you. And when I say they, um, they have a pretty good turnover of, of trying to keep guys or weed guys out. So um, that first couple of weeks, like I got, uh, I got tricked into going and getting some hanging bait in a storm um, when everything was bat, bat down and I didn't have a survival suit on. 
And uh, so I got, yeah, I got told to go into the header shack and start grabbing. And I got hit by a big wave and chucked into the set of stairs and came back in like wimping like a puppy and the phone rings. And um, then I, we're, we're way down at the bottom of the deck as opposed to being up in the wheelhouse. So that's why the phone would ring. And my, my boss got in shit for, they just played a trick on me. Right. But they, they had no problem putting me out there at the elements um, to see if I could take it. So, you know, so they play tricks on you. So what, so I, so who did you trust then? I mean, who did you start to build your, or, or it was kind of like trust nobody. <laughs> what, what was well, that like? Well, we, we, we lucked out because uh, I, excuse me. I lucked out because the Baranoff Courageous Fisheries is a really good company. Um, and I was, the universe put me, uh, even the first mate said when I first got out there, he's like, what are you doing out here? You know, um, Canadian dude out and never had any experience on a, on a fish boat. Um, managed to talk my on and grab it. So I did that by saying I was a hard worker and, and um, they lean on you pretty hard for that. So he said to me when I got up there, like, what are you doing out here, dude? And I said, well, I just wanted an adventure. And um, well, at the time I was naive and said I wanted an adventure. <laughs> I know. And, you know, so uh, they were good to me. And they said, you know, you're really lucky because you end up on the wrong boat out there. Um, with say people who perhaps don't have your best interest or aren't willing to take the time to teach you. I mean, um, I will say we saw, I saw, saw one circumstance where a guy said he was a deckhand. Um, and that's, a, that's pretty big talk to come fly in and say, you're a deckhand, you better all your nuts and know what you're doing. Right. And then know all the cranes and stuff. And he ended up, uh, he couldn't do tie knots and probably he, he had glasses and his glasses went missing the third day and he walked around blind as a bat for two weeks and finally the skipper like made somebody you know they basically point being the crew so like if you talk the talk you better walk the walk out there for sure yeah wow so so what um so what are what were some of the craziest things that that you saw or experienced um and I, I guess the the more you got into it, you know, once you got into it, like a month, two months, three months, um, what, uh, how did things change? You know, well, could... um, some crazy stuff that I saw was we weren't allowed to harvest blue king crab. Um, okay, they're they're big. They're a big species of king crab. They're bigger than reds, but there's always an observer on board, so you're catching bycatch, and you know, you you have to throw it all overboard or monitor it but we were messing around with this blue king and i poked it with a broomstick and it snapped it like it was nothing whoa and, uh, yeah like i mean like a snapping turtle would right like spun the other half in the air so like they're they're uh the crabs are pretty neat like that was one thing that i saw that i thought i mean i learned a lot i gotta admit i'm guys that spend their careers doing it my second trip when i went in 07 was because um my contracting company was a little bit I had come, come into a rough time and I needed money right away. And so that's how the second trip came to be. But um, what else did I see? I saw a lot of injuries, a lot of, I yeah, saw tell a guy. Us about who, yeah, I saw, you know, guy, uh, they had these crab cookers that, because uh, we were catching process boats. So we would uh, do all that in-house and the deckhands, if they were really cold, they would come in sometimes and, we had, they had several sets of gear on and I uh, happened to be roommating with the guy 
I won't name his name, but he basically, the boat rolled, we had our boat rolled a lot, um, more so than, than, than a lot of boats just because the round hull. And I watched his eyes go as big as dinner plates and he had um, 200 degree water had gone into his survival suit in through his gloves because warming his gloves up in the crab cooker. Right. And uh, so, and, and he made me promise not to tell anybody because he didn't want to lose his job. His hands were just like sausages, like they were all burnt to mean to hell. And uh, he toughed it out, didn't tell anybody. They ended up finding out the second trip because he started to get an infection. But, um, you know, that's how hardcore those positions are. And uh, like how I got my job was I was the fastest processor because there's several processors and well, I shouldn't say I was the fastest. That's not true. But I was working my butt off in there and uh, somebody got severely injured on deck and the the deck boss came in to this processor guy and said, my, my boss and said, who's your hardest worker and pointed at me. And I went up to the wheelhouse and signed a new contract. Like that's how it is. So, um, and, and lots of clothes, like the close calls when I think back were all just instinct. Like, um, one time we were, we had a big incinerator on the back of the boat and my friend and I, Darby actually, yeah, I've been looking for him, but I, I'm not sure if he's around, but, uh, him and I were loading that incinerator and he couldn't hold it. And it probably had a probably 180 on door on a couple hinges. And that door came and almost got our heads. Like it's, it's cause the boats, the boats being pitched and moved so much that you can't really anticipate if it decides to drop off, you know, right. eight or nine feet, all of a sudden you'll be that high in the air off the deck. Um, and to, you know, trying to catch whatever you're holding. So how did, um, I guess, did you, how do you acclimate to that? How does, how does it get to be normal when, when you have that much, yeah, turbulence happening on, on the boat? Um, it, and I assume your body is wearing down um, every week you go on and it's just more fatigue. Um, how do you, how do you keep it together? And did you see anyone? Yeah. Who didn't? They're just like, I'm done. Get me off of this. Or. Yeah. You, we had, a, we had a, a I mean, they have those, there's a couple, only a couple sweaters they sell in Dutch at the, at that famous store there. And one of them on the back, it says the beatings will continue until morale improves. Right. <laughs> right. You know, and I think that proves true. I mean, everybody's pretty excited if you're making money. Um, but if you get a, an aggressive uh, skipper that wants to set back and you're doing all that work, hauling, 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 and there's no money coming out of those traps, it can be really daunting to want to not, you know, lots of fist fights, you know, okay. not, not uncommon to see a fist fight in the galley. Um, you know, like definitely fought off a couple guys with knives, nothing crazy, like never got stabbed, but you know, tensions run high. It's, um, there's no females on the boat. So there's that factor. And then there's, uh, I mean, it's a dry boat for the most part, even though there's probably guys sneaking some stuff, but it's not like there's a bar or anything. So, um, after two trips, uh, three trips, things start to get pretty crazy for sure. Um, what can I say? I mean, I, I, I pretty much got to where you put your head down and, and don't, you know, like the, I'll give you an example like this. You get in such a rhythm of grumpiness and fatigue that, you know, you just, you, and you're looking for that big paycheck too. You know, that that big paycheck's coming. I mean, right. I think my paycheck was, uh, $65,000 US. So that was a lot of money at the time. 
Sure. Yeah. Um, for a guy like me, my age, right? So. Oh my God. So, um, I, I guess what injuries did did you uh, endure? You know, on the boat, and, and you know, are they still things to this day that that you you know have to deal with, or any or any like weird psychological stuff? You know, like you saw somebody get swept off, or you had this like you know three day storm, and you're like every time now. I mean, um, I guess what was the imprint on on you? Big waters. Uh, I mean. Big water definitely is one of the, something that uh, I hold near and dear to my heart now. Like the, the swells really are 60, 70 feet and 100 feet apart when uh, um, when you're out there in a storm. You're not crabbing in it, but when you see 80, 90 knot winds and you're, um, our wheelhouse was after the boat, which means at the very back. So we would be in the wheelhouse 30 feet up, well, only 20 something feet up off deck and, you know, big waves coming in the wheelhouse. So, uh, Definitely gives you a massive respect for big water. I don't. I don't take that. The other thing is, is um, hot water. We had a desalinization kit on the boat, so you might at best get a shower that was sporadic cold. Okay. So um, definitely, I still hug hot water when it comes out of the wall. <laughs> <It's something. laughs> Sounds silly, but I mean, it's like you know, you take like that for granted after a long period of time of. There's nothing like hot water after working hard as some guys would relate to and no hot water. I mean, they say it's hot water, but the boat rolls so much, you'll get a little bit of warm for five seconds and that's right. it. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, saw lots of, uh, lots of big. All right. So Rob is, um, yeah, coming to us live here from Vancouver. Uh, we might have to get him back in here in, in just a moment. But yeah, this is this is absolutely fascinating stuff, right? Because how in the world do you survive 122 days on the crab boat? I didn't know that like people are going with fist fights and and knife fights and, and things like that. I mean, that's absolutely, absolutely nuts. So um, so yeah, Rob will Rob will reboot. We'll bring him, you know, we'll bring him back in here in, in just a second, but uh just just a, a recap. So, you know, this guy starts out as a pro snowboarder, right? After that, uh, he breaks his tibula and his fibula. He has a cast put on. He takes an angle grinder and he cuts the cast off. All right. He cuts the cast off. And then uh, so he can go on one of the crab boats, right? So he's not fully ill. He gets on this crab boat. He has 122 days out. Uh, it's just crazy. And, and here, all right. Now the boat is still moving. I can see it right now. The boat is moving. So this is hey. like if we're really on the boat. So hey, Rob, welcome back. Um, yeah, we, we know we're working over some some uh, some distance here. So Rob is in Vancouver. This is actually a good simulation for if we were to do this uh, while you're on the 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 crab boat going out. If we were actually doing it on the crab boat, it'd be all wild and it'd be like water coming and stuff like that. But yeah. um, but yeah, so. So you you were talking about um, I guess how did pe how did guys stay um, I guess physically energized? You said it was a dry boat. I mean, was that a hundred percent a dry boat, or what were ways? I mean, how do you stay alert and awake for sixteen hours with um, you know this type of heavy heavy um, manual labor? Uh, yeah, I mean. Uh... 
I find that that that's a, a long that could be a long answer being a second generation hardworking guy, uh, but I would say that it's pretty prevalent that a variety of things are used to keep you awake when you're out using you know pushing those hours day after day, and it wasn't uncommon to see your Percocets and your Valiums and your cocaine. Um, that being said, you know, that's that's not to say that that was specific to any one boat, you know, I'm not right. going to go there, but right. it's going to say that, you know, th those types of jobs definitely come with those types of characters and those guys, uh, people can be really good at their jobs. They just end up sometimes, uh, you know, becoming reliant on things to get themselves through through that next shift. And then that's that's the and it's also I think you see a lot of pain, uh, physical pain that comes along with it, too. Um, I mean, I know you get what's called the claw out there where, uh, your hands literally stop working. And when I say that, I mean, like they, they just, you wake up from whatever sleep you've had and, and you got to pry them open. Holy and, smokes. Yeah. Like they, they literally, because they're, you know, you're, you're using them, you know, feverishly 16 hours a day. Uh, and when I see feverishly, I mean gripping 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 tossing and throwing and yanking and and non-stop so they end up just curling into themselves um so i know that that that's pretty common on the boat they're here soaking them lots of cuts um your hands are so i mean it all depends on your mindset right like uh we had a guy so you steam out we had a guy threaten to kill himself um because he was freaked out and we had to steam 12 hours back to dutch bring in another deck end. Uh, he didn't obviously didn't do that, but um, you know, some guys, they, they lose their shit. Excuse me for swearing. No, no. Yeah. They lose their stuff. Right. They, they just, they go mad and see how that happened. Um, I don't, I don't think I take more than three months of time. So you talk about guys, guys losing it. So, so the, this is this is spot on with this whole thing of finite voltage, um, which in the military, you know, if troops weren't rotated out, um, you know, in 80, 90 days, um, there would be this this effect where either they'd be killed, they'd be captured or they have mental collapse. And then the um, like Rommel, Erwin Rommel, uh, it, for the German troops, found a rotation pattern of a few weeks to rotate people in and soldiers in and off the front line. But um, tell me more about this, this um, phenomena that you saw of guys kind of losing it. Right. And, and what happened when, when, when would you be like, Oh man, they're going to lose it like in the next day or two. And then did you have to be more on edge because like, are they going to start getting careless at their job? Was that like a sign? Are they going to try to, you know, pick a fight with you or are they, because again, I mean, I was doing some research in these 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 crab cages, right? They're like eight hundred pounds and up that are swinging with the cranes, and and, a, and the boat is swinging at the same time. So I mean, yeah, it doesn't take long for someone to kind of like check out of their job, and suddenly your your risk of being injured goes up substantially. So I guess, how did those people get monitored? And was it the captain, or was it someone else that said you're gone, like you're done, you're too much of a risk? to everybody else and yourself to have out here. Um, how did that process go? Or was it other, you know, was it, was it you, was it other guys like saying, Hey, get your shit together here. Cause you goddamn near got us killed today. Um, that's a good question. Uh, you know, with OH and I, I mean, I, 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 I people that I'm, but mainly my construction experiences up in Canada. So, uh, 
OHS regulates us, and and they're pretty stringent on on the amount of hours that, that a, a, a worker can have. Well, maritime laws, that all goes out the window. So you can, I mean, during offload, for example, you'll do your 16-hour shift, and if you're if you're the poor sucker that has his shift coming in um, at, at hour 14, coming into Dutch after filling up his boat, he's going to offload for another 25 hours, and you're going to do your 40-something hours, and there's nobody telling you, um, I mean, and if it, it's not like they're going to slave drive you, but you'll get you'll get shunned hugely if you don't have the tenacity and the uh, endurance to pull that off. So it's it's kind of like a hockey team. Their mentality is is we're all in it together, and right. um, I think that camaraderie does get built. But I mean, I snuck off on one offload and went and slept under some rope. Okay, <laughs> you know, so. yeah. Like it's 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 you can only take so much. I mean, um. I gained, I mean, I'm only right now 160 pounds and I, you're, you're, you're gained 50, I was 200 pounds when I got off the boat. So you're, yeah, you're eating a lot, you're working tons. Um, and you're hoping every day, like, uh, I only de-iced the boat three or four times, but I, I heard stories of guys de-icing like whole seasons where, so what that means is, is, um, Boats can get such a bad list, obviously, that if that, that accumulative salt water and that, and then if a boat's listing and they don't de-ice, that's, that's the beginning of the end for them. Um, they'll go over and they won't come back okay. with all wow. the way that drops. So you can get woken up uh, in your off shift, and if the skipper decides to do so, if you're going somewhere that's a little bit more Arctic, you're going to have to de-ice the boat. And that in itself, the whole, like, if you finish your 16 hours of working and um, I'm just trying to think of what your temperatures are, but, um, you know, minus, minus, minus 25, minus 30. So you guys, I guess it'd be minus 10, something like that for you guys. But um, if you're working in that weather, you're freezing cold. You go to, you know, you have your shower, you eat a bit of food and you go to sleep and the boat's rolling. So depending on how you have your, your rack, whether you're parallel or per perpendicular, there's not much sleep going on because you're getting chucked around in your rack. Um, right. you, can get, you can get woken up to go for the rest of that sleep time to go pull ice off the boat the whole time. Cause it's, you know, you're in a storm that you're 500 miles in the middle of nowhere um, and coming to get you. So I back up the story because our boat, 18 million pounds during open season really can take 10 to 14 days um, depending on, I mean, this is back when I was crabbing. So if there's any crabs crabbing right now, forgive me on the quotas, but uh, so that could, you know, for us, open season was 300 boats doing that. And that's when you see the real chaos and the action and guys going overboard and nobody stopping and things like that, because it's open season. Right. After that, we our boat uh, purchased what's called the community development quotas, and they purchased those off the natives of Alaska who don't have the means to fish those quotas. Um, okay. Okay. So we're able to crab for another whole month. Um, it's not shotgun crabbing, but you're still crab fishing. Sorry if I'm yelling. So um, oh, that's good. That being said, uh, you, you end up with guys who you know we crab a lot longer than all those open boat those boats that got prepared for that open season. So our paychecks were bigger, but the risk of injury was higher because you're crabbing, you know, like we, we did, we did do Pecod and Greycod as well as a fishery. So sure. we, 
take all that gear off and, you know, did our fishery for king crab. But, you know, the more you're at sea, the more at risk you are in the Bering Sea. You're talking about de-icing. So what is that actually, what do you have to do to de-ice a boat? And I think you said if you don't de-ice it, it, it can get a list and then just tip over and that's kind of the end of it, right? So, so tell us about that process. Well, there's a couple variables with why it would list. So at the bottom of, of a boat, you've got, and you've got a hold. And in that hold, you know, those, those deckhands or whoever's managing that inventory is going to be managing it strategically. So it's filling up, uh, filling up evenly. And if that boat decides to go for too much of a roll because it's accumulated too much ice on its traps or on its bow or anywhere, gotcha. uh, you, you know, all that weight that they've caught, their inventory now has rolled to one side of their hold. And so it's a, it's, it's a factor that can happen quite quickly with um, if they're one quarter full and they get into a storm and they're not de-icing the next thing, you know, they that roll goes over too far. It doesn't come back and they're going overboard and they're sunk and the coast guard can't get them. Right. Um, the bearing sea, that's why it's so dangerous is it's, I mean, uh, like it would be, it'd be flat calm and I'd just hauled up a bunch of bait and my skipper would call me and he'd be like, uh, oh, no, I can't. Did I lose you? Nope. I'm here. I, oh. I just brought up a picture of, uh, you holding one of the craps. <laughs> Sorry. A little context I was like, ah, oh, the, 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 the connection in my home here is a little, a little sporadic. So, you know, it, you know, it'd be it, it, because it's such a shallow sea surrounded by such big mountains, um, uh, it just it, it'll hit a storm that uh, the weather boys will tell you what's going on, but you, you'll have flat calm weather, and two hours later you'll have fifty foot swells, wow. and that can be hard for a deck crew that's got their mindset on fishing, and then all of a sudden they're battening down the hatches for a storm, right? So you have to like actually physically chip ice off of this this thing, or it, it, and how do you? I mean, it, it sounds pretty harrowing. Like, how do you not? Did you see people fall off? If somebody falls off, how do you get them back on the boat? And um, I physically never saw anybody fall off, but I okay. did. I did. Uh, I did. I was crabbing when a boat bias had a guy go overboard, and another boat hauled that man on board. And the Coast Guard came, they put him in the hold and the Coast Guard came and got him. And, um, you know, the, the, that water is so cold and things move so swiftly that I, I mean, I just don't think that you could, me personally, I don't think I'd make it if I went over the rail. I just, I, it's just, you're, you're 300 feet away from the boat in one second. Yeah. Um, that's what I saw. So you know, you're, 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 you're trying to look for that guy in the water while you're crabbing because you can see lights in the distance and you know that, Hey, that guy's just gone overboard okay. and we need to be looking for him, but you're not going to find him. So the image I have up, is that one of the boats you, you took? That's, uh, from photo? Our, that's taken from our boat. So that's taken from our boat. Toward, okay. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, cause that thing looks like it's half underwater. Yeah, so that, that that's the size of the um, the cool thing about the, that sea is is the waves will be really far apart. I mean, when I say waves, they're swells, um, yeah. and those swells will be so. It's kind of fascinating, and it's not they're not tight, but they'll they're uh, the biggest, scariest waves I've ever seen in my life, and uh, they're hard to, to explain how big they are um, without having been out there. 
you know, and I'm sure guys that are listening, if anybody's been out there, they know what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's absolutely terrifying. Uh, terrifying to look at that. Wow. Wow. So what, a, what sorry yeah. to interrupt you. We had a, we had a, uh, uh, he's probably, man, I hope I can meet him one day again, but we had an engineer named Gator who was just the most badass dude. Okay. And yeah. He was so intelligent and he swore a lot, but he was just, all around, because I mean, an engineer of a crab boat's got to know what's going on in a variety of systems. There's more than I can even really fathom going on there. But uh, he would go around just swearing at us, being like, "You guys have no idea. We're just a cork waiting to like." He's like, he would just be stressing all the time that because we were just athletic deckhands. Yes, right? yeah. And he's like, "You dumb deck apes have no effing idea. Like, you're we're gonna sink any moment all the time, right?" And he'd be like, wow. You know, he he we weren't, but but he was thinking like that, right? Yeah. Tell me more about that because, because yeah, this is one of those things where, yeah, you got somebody on there who's, who's maybe looking at this from what the mechanical system standpoint, he's like, every, every moment could be disaster. Well, that I'm guy had to be like, just there's a, there's a, uh, sorry for the delay. There's ammonia. So, um, ammonia is what keeps as, as a, you know, this is probably everybody knows this, but ammonia runs rampant on those boats which is highly flammable, not to mention uh, just even just even breathing it in is toxic. And if, God forbid, there's an ammonia leak on a boat, um, we had one in dry dock on our boat in Seattle. Okay. And uh, fire trucks came and, uh, you know, whole nine yards. If you had an ammonia leak out at sea, that's a whole other variable that you you couldn't, like it, it clouds the whole, I mean, it's, I, I guess I could relate it to something like tear gas. I've never been tear gas, but it, it, it dissipates a whole room in seconds or you can't, you can't, once you breathe it in, you're, you're having a hard time breathing for a while. So those ammonia pipes, when you're down in the hold where you're putting all that crab or that inventory, those pipes are filled with, and lots of guys would go down there and smoke dope, right. Okay. Or they'd smoke cigarettes. And so, because they'd be down there in the hold working for so long, they'd light up a smoke. Well, those are the things that really can get everybody. It's the, like those bolts are only as good as they are maintained and they're moving all the time and they're being bashed around. So the likelihood of a failure mechanically is pretty strong. And then you throw in a guy having a cigarette or, I mean, and then you got the, the variables are huge. And I think that's why you get saying it's a dangerous job all the time because you can't predict it. All those. Wow. Yeah. wow. So what, what's different than, uh, than the, the, what they put on TV, you know, the, the different uh, Alaskan, you know, crab boat television shows where, you know, and, and then, you know, I'm sure you're like, I actually did that job. Here's what's different than what they're showing you on TV. So, so what are, what are some of the big things, the big differences between what, what's shown on TV about the job and what actually happens? I'd say, you know what, they've done a, I mean, they drama. God for like, I, I forgive me for any of those guys that are on the show, right? I've sat beside, I've seen them on the plane. There's, there's not that many crabbers. There's only 300 boats, so they, we all kind of cross paths. Or at the time, we did, you know. Um, what would I say that's different? I wouldn't say much. There's a lot of like guys are a lot like females when you get them all together. There's a lot of drama. Um, no disrespect to the, no, the, you no, know, sure. yeah, like, you know, so they, they, there's all sorts of drama that can, that, that can happen. And, uh, this show is a pretty good representation of the dangers that are there. Um, and the close calls are constant. I will say that. And 
now that I look back, like they've called me, um, well, after 07, they've called me three times and I don't go. Wow. So you say that the close calls too, like, how do you, uh, I, back in like World War One, right? They used to call it shell shock. You know, how, how do you recover from that constant, you know, those, those close calls for like 16 hours in a row, then the next day, 16 hours in a row. Maybe you get called, Hey Rob, we need to, you know, you got to come up here. We got to be doing de-icing right now. Um, how, how, what were strategies you found internally to stay strong or were there other like rituals, you know, people had to stay strong or, um, I'm just trying to understand, uh, yeah, how, how you kept going. I know there's the, you know, of course there aren't a lot of options because you can't just exit the boat in the middle of, you know, hundreds of miles around you and, and the payday at the end. But, um, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm trying to figure out how did, how did you really stay safe? Yeah. How'd you stay? Three, three or five of my deck bosses are dead. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Okay. uh, So I I think the life expectancy of a crabber is maybe five years if you did it full time. Um, I don't think you'd, I don't think you'd make it first. That's just my opinion, but I think you either climb up the ladder and you get, you get into the first mate position and uh, get into managing the boat and running the cranes and then you climb or you die. Okay uh or you get seriously injured um i i I mean i'll tell you one thing that was kind of cool was coming from snowboarding um we'd be out like so on the snowboard snowboard chairlift it's not uncommon to be in a storm and getting you know everybody's got seen the oakley goggles but back then you know so we get on the crab boat and guys are like they're, they're buttoned down to where they can just see about this much out of their survival seat or their hoodie, whatever they're rocking. And I'm like, and they're like, Oh, they can't even see in their gaffing or whatever they're doing. I'm like, why aren't we wearing snowboard goggles? Yeah. And now they all rock well in the boat. Like a lot of the guys rock snowboard goggles now for that. Like my boat, I introduced snowboard goggles on my boat. Okay. And I thought that That's was cool. a no brainer. Cause what, you know, it's any snowboarder can tell you or a skier for that matter. You know, you get your goggles fog up and you're riding down to go get them defogged at the ch- chalet and, you know, it hurts. So try working in that. That's just ridiculous. And, um, you know, I had my wife send up some snowboard goggles and that was a quick fix to that. So, you know, Oakley makes a pair of goggles and a couple of other ones. You can sweat as much as you want and they don't fog up. So um, definitely some things that uh, you can do out there to make your life easier, right? Yeah. Oh my God. Wow. So when you decided that you, you had enough. Okay. So after 2007, 122 day stint, um, what was, what was the deciding factor? You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to come back for another season. Um, oh, uh, after 03, I never, I, I was never, ever going to King Crab again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was it. No, I, I, I was uh, contracting and uh, my wife, uh, basically I ran into a financial position where a guy didn't, didn't pay me some money on a, and I was a small contractor. And so I, I called the boat and they quickly found a position for me in 07. And that was a bit of a different trip. Um, we, unlike, unlike flying into Anchorage, um, we steamed up from Seattle up past, all the way up and 
it was a pretty cool trip, 10 days of, you know, scenery and all that. But then that was a hard trip because I was expecting a baby and 50 days in. And, and like gotcha. you think about, you're thinking about like how the camaraderie was and all the last guys that you knew. And, and then all the boat dynamic and politics has changed and you got to start. They have no mercy on that. If you aren't loyal to them, you know, six, nine months of the year, you start from the bottom. So even though I had that seniority when I left, uh, by the second trip, I got it back. The second trip of the second contract, if you will. Okay. I had to pay my dues again. I had to go back out there. And even though I'd only done 112 days on that boat four years ago, I had to go and reintroduce myself and fight the fights and all that crap. Um, so, yeah, it, uh, it's definitely not something I'd want anybody to go and do. And um, from what I hear, it's getting like the other thing about crabbing is is like the quality like where this where the uh freight liners all go the quality of crab that we'd catch there versus where we'd get it like in the tip of the varying seas entirely different so i think sure. quality of crabs you know obviously over harvesting i mean i'm not going to get into the politics and nor do i have enough education to talk about that but um i certainly saw a variety of quality in marine life wow and was it kind of your wife too saying, Hey, we got a family now. I don't want you going back out there because what you're saying, you know, this, this life expectancy of, you know, maybe five years, if, if you're working on a boat and, and you're not like in a captain or crane position, I don't want you to do it. Was that part of it? Yeah. Yeah. I had my fa- I had my whole family basically saying like, we'll do. Um, and I had a whole new, I mean, I, I grew up in a concrete finishing com- uh, family. So, uh, you know, I hated concrete when I went crabbing, right? I was like, I would, I, well, I was like, but I, I came back with a whole new appreciation for concrete, which, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, as, as anybody would, but, um, it, it's what, what, like, I mean, I started smoking cigarettes out there, right? Like there's a few things out there that are, uh, like there's, there's no tax. So, um, you know, a carton of cigarettes, $15 payroll deduction. And if you're not catching fish, you're smoking cigarettes. Okay. Gotcha. Um, so like I picked up some nastier habits than I had when I started uh, crabbing and uh, had to get rid of those. And uh, yeah, I wouldn't do it again. And I mean, I, yeah, it's definitely the hardest. Like, what did I do? I broke a rib. That's the most that I did, but I, I, I consider myself pretty quick. Um, and I did have, an extreme amount when I think about it, close calls, like uh, was it uncommon to be dodging something all the time? Yeah. And as you said, you know, hundreds of pounds of things, were there like actually blocks of ice that would just like fly across the boat? Like, uh, you know, from the times. Yeah. Yeah. Only when he, he, typically they don't want you on deck if they're, if they're breaking up ice or they're somewhere where that's happening. But if they get into where there's a storm and they got to haul that gear out of there for whatever reason that skipper decides and they push that team, you can get put in a situation where stuff's coming on deck um, or just even large how the boat is navigated. Uh, as you know, you can either buck into it or, or be rolling and those play a part too. And, 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 and how you're fishing. So, um, so you said something, um, Rob, earlier of what there's a horn, and if you hear the horn, you got to grab onto something like immediately. What what was that all about? Yeah, so the skipper's communicating, uh, he's communicating and watching over top of you, 
right? He's right, right up above you and he's got a loudspeaker. He can talk to you, any one of you and tell you what to do. And his job is to make sure that no waves come on deck that are big enough that are going to pick you guys up and take you over the, the rail. Okay. That rail actually becomes useless if there's water on board. You're buoyant, right? So if the combination of that boat rolls and there's water on deck, you just go right overboard. So he's got a buzzer that signals and tells you if he's in trouble. He's like, hey, we're about to take on a dump truck load of water or something, right? And and quite often when that happens, the boat will take on a movement that's unpredictable as well. So oh it, it could drop, the floor could drop out from under you. Right. Um, and being such a big piece of steel, it's it's going to be quick, right? It's So when that happens, yeah, quick. To, if you hear a buzzer on a crab boat, I'd recommend you grab onto whatever you're near. Holy smokes. That yeah. is that's crazy. Because otherwise you're just left at the mercy of the water that's coming on deck. Yeah. Oh, my God. Wow. Hey, so we yeah. have a question uh, from uh, Bacon. Uh, Maldito, he's he's wondering about your thoughts on the movie The Perfect Storm. Um, you know, was what'd you think of it? I mean, just in general, any thoughts? <laughs> You're thinking about that, it. That's a true story. Yeah, that's yeah that, that that's a true story. Um, the the, the it, you know what it makes me think of is is I didn't realize till after my first trip that those guys going out in the Bering Sea were on a hundred foot boats like, you know, 110 foot. Um, so my answer to that is, is that size of that wave in, like in the end of that movie in combination size of that boat, I mean, it becomes insurmountable at some point, I think. And um, Because for clarity, I mean, for comparison, the boat you were on was 198 feet and it, will, it used to be an icebreaker and then it, it was reconfigured. So you're talking about 110 foot boat versus this 198 foot boat that you're on but yeah just just so yeah, people have that wooden boat too like some of those um some of those boats will have a wooden hull or they'll they're like i've seen boats in dutch that are wood going I, and i just think to myself like um i wouldn't want to be in a wooden boat in the bering sea uh or let alone um on a small boat you know the the <laughs> no no way man <laughs> the boat that i was on was plenty big and i was happy to be on it and uh I give kudos to those guys that go out and catch our crab on a hundred a boat within a hundred feet. That's that's and and mind you, keep in mind they are going in and out the same. I think the same shift, you know. I don't or they're staying out for. I, I can't see how they'd stay out in those those seas with that size boat. So there's a question, another question from uh, Bacon. Did did you ever like? tie yourself to a railing like was there were you always tethered to something so you didn't get swept off during some circumstances you know like almost a safety thing you know like if you're up on a construction site or roofing or whatever they always have you tie off on something was that something they did in in um in crab boating when you were out there that they say hey rob tie off before you go out there and de-ice the stack so there's pot ties depends there's so there's two cranes on 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 a crab boat one is pulling pots off that pot stack that you on those pictures I sent. And the other crane is picking that trap up and dragging it over to the automatic launcher. And then a guy jumps in, baits it, goes overboard. So whoever is tying and stacking those pots or uh, 
he's 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 exactly right there that's uh yeah he's tied off so if we're fishing out there and he's on top of that stack in a storm he's got he's tied off yeah but i have okay. i have seen circumstances where he wasn't too but i would say that that's not a practice that i mean if he's if he's not tied off it's because he's got to do something quick and most of the time I, they don't want to see their guys they're anybody who's on the stack or or out on deck is a premier deckhand right and they don't want those guys to be gone and that's how fast they go they're 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 uh they're gone and then you got to replace them and then where are you so so on this picture where would they tie off so here here's a uh tire and looks like here's here's you taking a nap down here right he'll have a, all he'll have is a carabiner like basically a rock climbing right. rope and he'll have it tied to something like a grounding line and okay. he'll as he moves and he won't always have it on him, right? Like if he decides to go from one stage down to the next, he might have to just almost very similar procedure to a guy who had to re-rig while rock climbing. Okay. Right. Um, and yeah. there's no right or wrong way. And I personally have never been the guy on the stack. And each of these weighs like 800 pounds, right? Each of these cages is, is yeah. okay. Holy smokes. Yeah, look how dented and just like mangle a lot of this stuff is. You know, just oh, from yeah. they, well, they're they're getting uh they're getting dragged across deck and banged off the rails. And I mean, we spent a lot of time in dry dock pre pre trip. Um, you know, I have to be I have to be humble and say that a guy that's only crabbed for two seasons, I'm sure there's crabbers listening to me right now that perhaps do it more so than myself that would have a lot more input. And I gotta, you know, give kudos to those guys that hey, there's there's crabbers out here who really, who that is their livelihood. And, and oh, those sure. guys, you know, so I just going to hats off to those guys. Um, but yeah, yeah. From what I, my, my experience with crabbers is, is they're tough as nails and it's a really hard job. All right. So we got this picture here. Um, so that's you, right? You're it's wiped out. No, that's not me. That's my, my crewmate Rex. Oh my God. It's Rex. That's crew, my crewmate Rex. Yeah. And so <laughs> we would do uh, we would do little tiny runs um, sometimes, and that's how you know that's how Ty would be. That's just a, a we call those Saratogas, and that's a twenty minute Saratoga there. Okay, um, and I took a picture of him. <laughs> what is it? it's like a it's like a corrugated floor up here? Is that just so? <laughs> yeah, he's he's inside he's inside the boat right now, so he's not out on deck. Okay, but. Um, yeah, that's Rex. I, he I hope, looks tired. Yeah, I hope one day I, I, I cross paths with some of these. These maybe this uh, this interview will get me cross paths with some of these deck guys because a lot of them I've reached out and I, I can't find them. Oh my god! Wow, yeah. that is that is uh, that's crazy stuff. So hey, so you said you know you came from a concrete family. And when you got done with with um, crabbing, you went back into concrete and and you're very successful. I mean, tell us about um, why you got back in. And then also, I guess, you know, what you learned from crabbing that you carried into, uh, you know, safety when it came to, you know, pouring concrete, you had this, you know, massive machinery. I think you, you, you had this this big crew, you're working all over Canada. So tell us about that experience. So initially pro snowboarder, then you went into, um, you know, crab boating, then into concrete, 
we're going to bring up a couple images as you're talking here, but tell us, tell us about that. Sure. Thanks. Yeah. Um, well, I'm a second generation concrete contractor. So yeah, by a young age, I was running my father's crews or working closely with his smaller crews, making sure they were run. And uh, so that allowed me to to quickly be an entrepreneur and, and start my own firm at a young age. And we were in 2008, uh, our economy, our little Canadian economy had some issues. So we, like most Canadians do, we marched ourselves up to Fort McMurray. Fort McMurray is the heartbeat of Canada for financial for the economy in essence. Well, there's a couple other ones, marijuana, but that being said, uh, so we, we went up there and my father and I started pouring, uh, after a, a decorative career of many years, we went up there and just started pouring flat work, which basically is the slab on grades or suspended slabs. And we, uh, for McMurray rewards, it's a lot like it's got the entrepreneurial mindset of America. Okay. It really does. It's if you say you can do it and you show up and do it, they'll give you as much work as you want. So having a background and, and being able to work hard, I, I went up there and I was blessed to sweep the market pretty good. And in a matter of a couple of years, I bought a concrete pump, just an old one. And I bled over that and rebuilt it. And then I bought a new one. And uh, the reason I bought a new one is because we were turning down so much pump work that, I mean, for McMurray is, um, I mean, it's, it's 400,000 barrels a day pumping out of there. So a lot of revenue to be had. And, being that it's a seasonal uh, construction, you're go, go, go around the clock. So we would pump for 36 hours. We would pour uh, 10,000 feet every day, sometimes 20 to to 10,000 foot pours a day. Um, We had 96 T4s a year. So a big, uh, with only a 12 man crew. So lots of guys, turnovers, lots of, I call Fort McMurray Vegas without the fun. Right. (laughs) So uh, there's lots of drugs there and uh, lots of bad things going on in terms of, uh, you know, lots of lots of perhaps uh, big money combined with some ignorance. So, you know, that's that's for McMurray. So I guess where am I going with that that story? Uh, you, you know, we, we built that company out pretty big. Right. And from there we had a forest fire and the forest fires put us back to Vancouver May 2nd. And those forest fires were, I think, being that you're you're a safety guy, you can uh, imagine. I mean, if there was a hundred thousand people that had to get evacuated in a matter of twenty four hours, so it was pretty big pandemonium for those forest fires. And that was the end of my Fort McMurray career. And what what year was that? Uh, that was two, May second, two thousand sixteen. Okay. Oh my God. So yeah. I mean. So you lost your your equipment and everything with that, and or you just lost business. There was no business up there because of the fire. Well, they so that fire uh, was the biggest fire in Canadian history, and it was moving a hundred. It was moving. Uh, was it moving? I think it was moving forty meters per second at one point. Holy but, smokes! Uh, oh, it was big. Yeah, it was big. I was pouring that day that it, we evacuated for Suncor, which is a big Canadian oil company. And uh, 
Yeah, so the forest fires came and I had the contracts for three schools with the province of Alberta, three brand new schools. Yeah. And one of my pump, my pump was on one of the schools that caught on fire. So that pump uh, didn't catch on fire, thank God. But it, it, it wasn't, we weren't allowed to, first of all, nobody was allowed to access the city for the first at uh, least 35 to 40 days. They let us come back in phases. Holy uh, smokes. So, yeah, so we weren't able to access. I didn't see my pump for like 65 days, and oh, by then I, I didn't. I have, have an to... image here, Rob. Is this is this the pump, or it was similar to this? You're talking about a pump. That this is, is the one you sent yeah, me. That's the pump. Yeah. Okay. And, and how much? I guess so. This piece of equipment is is what um, a half million dollars or more. Uh, I paid seven hundred fifty thousand for it. Holy smokes! So basically, you're like, you can't get to that for a month. And you have no idea what condition it's in. Yeah, we tried to see it in the cameras uh, through Bird Construction. I was working for Bird Construction at the time, and uh, I couldn't see it. And then I finally had someone lay eyes on it, but um, from far away, they wouldn't let us touch it. But then when we went up there, we had to go back to our homes, which had burnt, um, as well as, I mean, it was... It was pretty much the beginning of the end. So um, we we tried to, uh, it, it burnt our shops with had all of our equipment in it um, and we didn't have contents insurance. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a story of negativity that doesn't really, I don't need to go down that road, but I think a lot of people were inundated with the huge problems and um, as were the insurance companies, right? That right. nobody could keep up um, with that level of natural disaster. Poor Fort McMurray's having a really hard time because they just went through a flood as well not too long ago. Um, so they're, they're, they've had a tough go, the citizens of that town. But a question I wanted to go back to uh, from Bullrush um, in, in the chat room. And he was asking, asking, you know, how do you fight mental and physical fatigue? And, and this could be just in general, what have you learned? What are strategies you, you use? Not necessarily on the crab boat, but just... You know, you've had so much experience um, in your life with high adrenaline activities, um, pushing yourself. How, how do you do and This is kind of like everybody wants to know, like, how do you do it? How do you, how do you, what are your suggestions for fighting mental fatigue? What worked for you? What might work for others? Physical fatigue. You're like, I ate seven bananas a day. All right, I'm going to do that. Whatever it was, you know, but um, yeah, if you could, if you could, you know, touch base on that, because uh, that's. It's a really good question, and um, I yeah I'm I'm, I'm interested. I, I mean I'm like how the how the hell did you keep doing this and throughout everything? How did how what are your strategies? What what worked for you? What might work for other people? Uh, it's uh it's it's for me it might not be what works for everybody, but um, I know in Fort McMurray uh, I had one sober guy on my crew named Vernon. God bless Vernon, a Jamaican guy. And he, he didn't drink. And so all of us would have to get our, cause we'd get drug tested out at the plants and we'd, had, I'd get a lot of work. So I guess the answer to your question is, is we used a lot of drugs. Okay. Yeah, no, I, and, and tell uh, me about that. I mean, let's, you know, I, I whatever you feel comfortable I, with, but, um, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 I work with addicts and it's a tough, tough area to, um, it's certainly not, uh, doesn't coincide with, you know, starting a business. So this is more of a personal side of my life, but, 
yeah, I think, unfortunately, in the realm of all sorts of construction where trades are put to the test in in severe conditions, I think that you're going to see some form of uh, endurance, I mean, other than natural. Um, I mean, now that I'm a recovered addict, I don't line up those 10,000-footers back-to-back, for example. Um, okay. You know, that's like, I guess, as a business manager now that runs, I don't I don't load myself. I mean, I've had to manage my life differently so that my personal well-being's first and foremost, uh, that, that supersedes money. But I guess when you're running those cycles of, Hey, I can make a million dollars in four or five months. Yep. Um, you know, you make those decisions to maybe choose drugs. And I say that with having seen a lot of people do that aside from myself and seen it, you know, uh, um, you know, I, I, I think it's a, it's, 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 I mean, I don't. I don't think the discussion needs to go down that road, but I definitely see that there's a guys who are tenacious or employees, male or female. They they feel that obligation to their employer, and they're also when push comes to shove, if you want that paycheck and it's minus thirty, and you're you, you know you got to keep going, you're going to find something to put in your body. Right. And, I, and and you were sharing with me, um, you know, when we're talking about, you know, say say that it is something. It, a million dollars that could be made in, a few, in four or five, six months. Um, you know, to to get to that million dollars, there might be tens of thousands of dollars of of drugs. You know that are that are um, consumed in order to get to that and get to that goal, which, which is you know probably not uncommon across many high stress, high deadline you know industries. Um, and yeah. you know, share share also. Um, you, you talked about the the impact of um, working uh, in high adrenaline jobs, right? The impact this had on your body, and um, the the uh, I, I guess the ad- impact on your adrenal glands um, when you found out, hey, here's here's a situation, you know, with your adrenal glands that that they've changed because of the lifestyle you've you've led, and what that means, and then I guess how you manage that right now. Um, because yeah, when we're young, I think we we believe we can do things perpetually, and then when we get older, we realize oh, some of those things that we did when we were younger, there's some consequences now. But um, so, so you you, um, you worked with was it a homeopath or can you tell us that, that story? Yeah, yeah. So I was in Dubai doing some work, um, uh, and I was ill, and I'd been ill for quite you know for about a systematically getting ill like not not super ill but i was ill and i didn't know why so i'd gone you know no real results i'd gone to this naturopath who uh was very thorough he's a university university victoria doc and he didn't take him long to determine from some other things that my adrenaline glands were completely depleted and that was the first time that i'd heard that right uh probably 27 or something and he said, yeah, like, what do you, what's, what do you do? What's your history? Right. I mean, obviously he's got to, you don't, you don't fill out in your questionnaire, all the things you've done in your life. Right. Right. Well, he was interviewing me and I says, holy shit. Like, yeah, you're, and I, he says like, you have nothing in there. Like there's, and that was unbeknownst to me that, you know, going from the, 
the sports or whatever, the, the edge riding sports into, and I mean, and we still, I mean, having kids, we don't edge ride as much, but we still were, even when we had babies, we were still edge riding our snowmobiles. And I have friends that are still absolutely insane on their toys, but right. uh, I guess that adrenaline that everybody's chasing, right. Uh, I didn't know that your body could get depleted of that. Right. Uh, I know that the, there's a dependency thing there with drugs and alcohol. So I don't know how all that plays a part, but it was fascinating to me to find out that your body can actually become completely depleted. Yeah. I, I had done some research in that and, and studied, um, you know, with some other researchers, um, um, uh, adrenaline. Um, and it, it's interesting too, because your body can just also reset at a higher, what it's called a higher cortisol level. So basically you just have a higher adrenaline in your body all the time when you're doing these jobs. It never resets, you know, like it's always just high. And there are really negative effects of that, like, you know, can thin out your blood vessels and, and, and stuff like that. So it, it's good. Yeah. That, you know, that's, that's not the state that you're in anymore. Um, but it, it was really weird though, because it, it would, again, it would reset in people to this high level and it would take months or years to come back down. So I'm thinking too, like, you know, think of the crab boat when you're talking about crab boating, maybe, you know, some of the deadlines on, on some of the huge concrete, um, you know, once, once that would be passed, I'm guessing your adrenaline level stayed high for quite a while, but you're right. Actually, it, it is something that, um, it does, it does deplete. It just doesn't react after a while. It just, it kind of shuts off. Um, if that's this perpetual. St- so what, what, what do they tell you? What do they say? Here's what to do to, um, feel better to restore this. Um, oh, he gave me a big, he had to change my diet and he gave me a big long list of, uh, things to, to, to do lifestyle wise. And, uh, as well as some very specific things to try to get those adrenal glands replenished. But back to, I will say one thing about the be, you know, when you asked about the tenacity of the mindsets of all these different types of dudes, uh, or people that I worked with, whether it's in crabbing or, or, or concrete, they all the guys who tough it out, who become your comrades, they all have the same mindset. They're all crazy. Yeah. And I don't mean it, they're not intelligent or, but they have something in them that's called, you know, it's dig. It's, it's, it's deep that I think, I don't know whether it comes from, I don't like it's, it's a dig that uh, I think you either have or you don't. Right. And the people that don't have it, don't make it. And the, quite often the guys that have it, they're fascinating. They give you the shirt off their back, but they probably have some personal problems. Yeah. I don't know why, but it's a, it, it takes a certain type. And, and I, maybe I'm entirely wrong on this. This is just my personal opinion. So I don't, I'm not a, I don't, I'm not a degree, but what I've seen the guys that who stick and stay in those types of jobs, uh, they're the type of guys you'd want behind you in a fist fight, but they're also unpredictable in certain scenarios. Wow. Right. That's- so we have a question um, from Bacon. Uh, he was asking, as far as racial makeup on the cruise, um, any people of color on the boats? Lots. Okay. Yeah. All right, Bacon. Guys, your question. Paraguay. Uh, guys from all over the United States uh, with with you know uh, a variety of ethnicities. Uh, all common in the United States. So I don't have any one specific one, but I mean, 
my roommate was a uh, African American gentleman who was super tough, uh, and he actually went on to be my first trip. He was just not really anybody on the boat, and when I went back my second trip, he was a deck boss. So he climbed the ladder and kicked yeah. butt, and uh, and uh, yeah. Um, but but I did see a few guys like even Rex there. Sorry, Rex, if you're listening, you're probably <laughs> not. But- you know, the, the bigger guys uh, and no disrespect to them because they could also lift 200 you know pounds easily is where I couldn't, they tend to get more injuries because of the quickness of like the, it's something about this, that like my deck bosses, they all seem to be the same size, Roy okay. Junior style, 170 pounds, really lightweight. Uh, and they were able to instinctively move more so than there was a lot of like That's fascinating ripped, ripped coats, you know, where stuff would happen and like oh look at this and like it ripped right through their gear but it wouldn't get them and uh whereas another guy would get his leg squished because he was that extra 40 pounds and he just didn't get that leg out so yeah lots and lots of like whoa did you see that and and i mean when i look back at that um i'm complacent and i think oh you know i made it but i think i made it because i was just maybe just happened to luck out. Like so, I think. so you mentioned earlier, did I get this wrong that you, you gained weight while you were on the boat or did you lose weight while you were on the boat physically? Like, well, did, you get it cause they're, they feed you so well. So you're uh, like my, the actually MLR cook was on the show, the deadliest catch. He went on to cook for other boats. Okay. And he, and he, his name was Emil, uh, which was funny, but um, <laughs> that is funny. Yeah, and he'll make me meal. But uh, he he would tell me that you know you can't have any more pancakes. I'd be like, "What are you talking about?" It'd be like three in the morning, and I'd just woken up, and then I'd have to go tell the first mate. And the first mate would come down and be like, "You make this kid as many fucking pancakes as he wants." Right. Absolutely, right? And so that's the sort of and then you know you'd you'd eat, you'd only have uh, twenty minutes to eat in between your sixteen hours, so you'd work for eight hours, you'd eat for twenty minutes, you'd go back at it for eight, so you you're shoveling your food in, right? It's still amazing to me that you put on weight um, because, you know, the job is so strenuous. So obviously you must have really had high, you know, caloric intake, you know, whatever. So what are you eating? Pancakes? What? Spam, Fruit Loops? Oh, they, I they, mean, they Skittles? Well, everything that you could think of they had for food. Well, that, that's not entirely true. Towards the end of every trip, it got scarce. Right. Uh, you know, like not real scarce, but scarce ish. But uh, you had your Mexican night, which I loved. Uh, food, like I love food. So, food, especially being a recovered addict, food's my like, <laughs> it's, my, it's all I have left. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, sorry. But yeah, no. So, the, yeah, the food was always really good. I mean, I remember at Thanksgiving, though, which was kind of kind of funny. He, he, he didn't, everything kind of, he's got these systems for cooking because the boat's moving so much yeah and i went in the galley and he was sleeping and the turkey was whipping across the- oh, oh yeah like get your turkey like- under control yeah. so he got in trouble and he had to make a whole other turkey and we missed thanksgiving dinner so that is an awesome story yeah cool. anyway um so rob we have a question um from sir brian brian bowden from uh, the bronx new york city and He's asking, how do you deal with it mentally after the job is done? So, um, yeah, I mean, how how do you, how do you unplug? How do you, how do you come home, you know, be a dad to your, to your kids and, and, you know, not, uh, um, you know, take this stuff 
around with you 24 seven? Well, I kind of got in the habit of not talking about it okay. um, because of the story. You know, once in a while you cross a guy who was a crabber or he'd been to Dutch or he'd been, you know, fishing in Alaska and you, you, you could share stories, but uh, you kind of, I don't ever want to compare myself with anybody who's been to war because I certainly couldn't compare to that. But um, I can say that after coming home and trying to maybe not brag about it or when I was younger, try to be like, oh, this is nobody really believes you or they 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 there's no way that you could have done that. Or uh, so I, I, I just turned it off. I, don't, I didn't really talk about it that much because okay. that, no point. I mean, it, uh, and I think you indicated too, like everybody kind of went their own way because they were from all over the place. So you're talking about Rex and some people who, I mean, you really didn't stay in contact with because that's not how it was. These people weren't coming back to your hometown or, you know, well, things. There, so when it there, dissolved, it dissolved. I stayed, uh, I actually just got a message from a guy about a month ago looking for one of my crab, like all four. I know that one of my deck bosses is alive, but I think three of them have passed and they were young dudes. Um, I sure hope they haven't, but when I searched for them on Facebook um, and then their military, one of them was in the military, their military. I, I mean, how do you... I probably was a bit naive going out there uh, and doing that job. And I'm pretty lucky that I'm alive. It's probably, and it's not something that I glorify, but when I really analyze it, I go, you know, maybe I was a bit naive. Maybe there was some higher power. Like it was, it was, yeah, it was a dangerous job and I made a rash decision and I lucked out coming back. But uh, I mean, it's, it's not a, not a fun memory, I guess, but it's still kind of cool, if you will. Like, I don't know. So we've got, uh, I'm going to pull it up right here. Um, and share screen. All right. So this is from three days ago. Um, this is, uh, looks like a Malon race, a deckhand yeah. on a deadliest catch. So he died. He was 38 years old. Um, didn't die on the boat, but it was a heart attack. So, um, yeah, leaves behind a, a wife and and four children. But um, you know that's a yeah. You know, you, you, I guess if you follow through on on you know the people who serve as deckhands and on these boats, I I wonder if there is, as you said, you know, the lifespan um, comes down because you've just done more damage to your body. And you know, I don't, and I don't know more beyond this, but I mean, there are several articles like this. Uh, just because the show's been been popular, will they'll bring in uh, people? Yeah, he had a. Here's here telling where he had a torn Achilles heel while he was uh, crabbing, and he could never kind of get back to it after that. Um, so, hey, I'm I, I'm going to ask you a question um, from John Steele. Uh, John Steele is is a, a friend of the the show. I'm actually was on episode 88, which is um, Escape from Seattle. Record it more than a year ago, not not with the current Seattle uh, events, but he's he's just asking, um, do you miss the rush? Do you miss the rush? I do. Okay. Yeah, I, <laughs> so, I would. And there's been a few times where uh, I can get hyped back up around August and I've called the boat, which 
doesn't take long uh, for my, and that was more so when I was in my drinking days, I would get excited and think I wanted to go back out there. And then it didn't take long if I sobered up to realize, no, I don't want to do sure. that. Uh, right. Um, and I mean, my, my level of adrenaline now is snowmobiling. So, I mean, I, I still ride my skateboard very cautiously. Like my kids are, I basically go with them, but for my level of adrenaline that I get now, I would say it's riding a snowmobile and that's also done cautiously and, and uh, with root finding okay. and proper gear. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, being somebody who had to go through, uh, I mean, we, we ended up going into the rehab program. Uh, so I did get educated on addiction and on no dopamine and you learn a lot. And so you actually learn why you're chasing that big jump or why you're like, and you, you learn something about yourself as to like, no, like that's, that's something in my brain chasing that adrenaline. Right. So you, I mean, this is just my personal experience. I'm not speaking on behalf of anybody, but yeah, you have to manage the desire for, um, for uh, risk taking and gauge that risk taking accordingly. Right. So. Right. Yeah. Cause you're right. I mean, risk taking is, is part of life, but as you also, um, you know, shared, you know, your perception is people that would do, you know, for example, um, you know, crab boating, you know, they're up, they're predisposed. They're seeking a higher level of, of engagement, you know, whether it be a strenuous job, something really unpredictable. And um, so, you're, uh, we have excellent questions from the chat. So thank you guys so much in the chat. I mean, I, I want to bring these forward to you. So Rob, a question again from uh, Bacon Maldito. He's asking, did you carry forward the same type of diet once you got out of crabbing? And he's he's indicating he's seen that in military veterans over high intensity jobs that when they get out of the military, they continue at, you know these types of diets. And I'm assuming that and put on a lot of weight. Um, but so did you... Yeah, did you carry that diet over once you got out of crabbing? No, I didn't. I, uh, for some reason, my body um, burns a lot of calories. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't know why, but I have a hard time keeping weight on without without really packing back the food and maybe not having physical exercise. As soon as my body goes into physical exercise, I don't keep that weight. Uh, okay. <laughs> So I, I didn't, I, but I, I was, I know my wife and, and my mom, when I came back, they didn't, I mean, I had a big beard and, and uh, like all guys grow up there and, and they didn't recognize me when I got home. My, my son didn't recognize me either. So because um, uh, you said you put on weight, actually, that that's why they didn't recognize you. I was actually, it was muscle. Okay. So, so I'd put on uh I hadn't really gained any overweight. It was all in my upper body, my chest. Uh, I was um, I was a bait boy before I was a deckhand. So I was the guy jumping in the traps, that, and, and that's a shitty job. Uh, when was this photo taken? Uh, that when or where? Well, I guess when was this? Like you know, that's early. My on. That's my first trip. Yeah. Okay. So I would have been. That was uh, yeah. I was a young man then. <laughs> wow. wow and you said then the first thing was like you had to bait the traps yeah so as a bait boy uh that's one one notch up from a processor if, if you get that great position is when you're when you're long lining so right there we were long lining so uh for those of you that don't know what that is that's 
it's a pretty cool system. There's a thousand hooks per mile. You got a 10 and 11 miles of gear, excuse me. And you, you set that gear with an automatic baiter. And uh, then what's left when you haul is all these awesome fish that come up. And if you're on them, you're gaffing and moving pretty quick. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so you, your, your physical, when you're, when, when you're working out there, you're, you're probably burning 7,000 calories a day. I was going to say, I mean, yeah, that's because, you know, like Michael Phelps uh, training for, you know, the Olympics or something, I think, you know, seven, 8,000 calories a day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I, that's where it just is, is astounding to me that you were putting on weight, even though it's muscle, right. That you're still having a, a mass gain of, yeah, of so they, weight, so. they, they feed you a lot of two, like you'll, like what, what you'll do is, so I, I guess I should back up the truck. When you're, when you're a bait boy for a long line, your whole sole purpose is just hauling bait from the hold up to, uh, so you're hauling a hundred pounds back, like literally for 16 hours, you're hauling a hundred pounds in your arms when you're a bait boy long lining. So you're, uh, and then you, they, they bake a lot. Like I would take all the baking after breakfast so I'd have my big breakfast between three and three by four o'clock. I was ready to go 4am and my pockets would be filled with everything I could have because by 10am, so you wouldn't get lunch till noon by 10am, your stomach was severely empty. Right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, you're, you're, uh, you're stealing all the food. You're, you're going through a ton, a ton. And then very similar to concrete finishing too. I'll say that uh, you're, you're burning the same amount of calories when you're doing those big cores. So I know I'm going to get these questions um, from the side, but so then what, what would you recommend? Like if, if you're going to be burning th- that many calories, what would you recommend that people eat? We take uh, salt pills. All yeah. depends on the time of year, as you know, but we, we take religiously, there's these really good marathon packets. I got some of these salt pills are from Japan, actually. Take them when I bike, bike marathon. So good. Yeah. Uh, anybody who says, well, I'm sure. Yeah. You, you, Anybody who's pushing the limits with, with hydration. And uh, I only really find I get in trouble uh, when I say trouble, like towards the end of summer with tendonitis and, and dehydration and rep- repetitive malnutrition. And that's when I start taking those uh, marathon packets and uh, really diving into that, the bottom of the tank. Okay. Uh, yeah. Any, anything else? Yeah. You're, you're like, I'm taking beef jerky. Well, I, I, and I mean, like, I'll give an example. Like I took, uh, I went to my doctor and I took, I said, okay, give me some T3s to take with me. And he he gave me 250 T3s, which are just Tylenol with codeine, but they were gone in the first week. Holy smokes. You're taking whatever you can to keep going. Right. So, wow. You know, like, and you know, you give them out to all your buddies because everybody's sore and, uh, then everybody goes on to what everybody else has. I mean, it's, uh, and I, I need to reiterate that I'm not speaking on behalf of every boat and every crew, but from what I've seen with those dynamic groups of athletic dudes that have no coach or no no real, uh, they haven't set a good path for their health prior to taking on that work, is, is they revert to any form of malnutrition that gives them that extra bit of energy. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, I mean, that totally, that totally makes sense. Yes. So let me, let me kind of move us toward, toward, um, 
our last right. This, this has been fascinating. I, I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, so much interaction in, in the chat. Um, I'm going to have Rob back on the show, and we're going to focus on his company, Rooftop Life Raft. And, you know, th this show gives you an idea about about Rob, and I, th I think really frames, frames it well for um, why you're qualified, you know, to design these rooftop life raft, you know, systems, which, uh, you know, people can be rescued during, um, you know, sudden flooding. But um, so tell me, I, I'm going to find some images, you know, I'll bring them up. But um, when did you get into deciding, hey, I'm going to, you know, create this company where we're going to have uh, these, these uh, life raft systems, these survival systems, which will deploy. I think you're sharing with me in the, in the Netherlands, the required systems. We know that we, we've had hurricanes, of course, in the U.S., you know, these flooding uh, in, in the you know, southern states. Um, how did you get into that? How did you decide this is what you, what you wanted to do? And, and um, you know, tell me, tell me about that, that process. I'm going to be, and as you see some of the images come up, you know, feel free to comment on them. Cool. Yeah, thanks for asking about that. Um, Rooftop Life Rafts is a project that uh, we're all proud of. And there's, there's, it's myself and six of my friends. Uh, and well, it started out as six of us total. But what, what, what happened was, is we were solving a problem. Um, year after year, well, I, I'd been through a minor flood. So not a, not a, not a catastrophic one where any life was lost, thank God. But enough to to uh to have an eye opener and so when i moved my family uh we were renting and we moved into a into a home and we had the option of the second or the first floor we chose the second floor and i put a raft in the closet because we were near a flood dike and so that was the beginning of rooftop life raft some years ago and then we uh, started to see flood footage annually of people being stuck on their roofs and everybody, you know, all these flood um, organizations, not naming any, you know, they say, okay, get on your roof and call 911. Well, right. The, the simple numbers that we all know, uh, Hurricane Harvey was 6 million people affected and between Friday and Monday that weekend, there was 75,000 phone calls to 911. And 21,000 people were on their roofs waiting to be rescued. Right. And that's one example. So um, my friends and I had, uh, you know, we'd done what every, every entrepreneur does is thought to ourselves, well, this product must exist. And that was a couple of years ago and, and, and it didn't. So we, we, we searched long and hard and then we got it patented, which was very difficult to do, I think. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't no disrespect to the USPTO. They've been fabulous, but it was definitely challenging as an entrepreneur to get this far. And uh, so here we are with, with, we've just, we've just merged uh, with, with a firm that's given us some horsepower to get us to a launching phase. No pun intended. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I've got this image up so people can conceptualize. So tell me, tell me what's in that image. So that's uh, deployed into open water there. Uh, that's our four-man uh, ranger, which is uh, it provides a family of four uh, an opportunity to get to safety in the event of a flash flood, tsunami, or uh, any sort of rising water scenario. 
and the unit really in essence you push a button and uh you're off to the races with all sorts of survival goodies in there we, we custom make them ourselves so we're able to pack high quality gear in there uh um so so customers are able to choose from a variety of good of good quality gear that they can put in there as well as they can increase the size of the raft right up to a 10 person so that's cool. like the, yeah. How about the Netherlands? Like this is, you know, this is required in the Netherlands that they have a, a system like this, right? Well, they've, they've mandated that it's marine, that they, it's municipal law to have marine craft in your yard. Okay. So that's where they're headed in the sense that, um, I mean, I don't have any, my, my units in the Netherlands. Um, but, but I, I would say that, I mean, this invention this invention isn't really for to make money. And I've had people say, oh, you know, call me when you're on your yacht. And, and that's not what it's for. It's it's to save lives. And uh, the frustrating thing, and I shouldn't say frustrating, but the ambitious part is when you watch the news and you see, you see people really stuck and you're like, I, I know how to get you guys off there. And so that's what this is designed to do. Uh, as well as we've, we've been blessed to synergize with some larger firms that specialize in in saving lives that have paved the paved the way themselves and they, they've synergized with us so we've we've reached out with some bigger companies uh and it's it's it, it's growing it's working well and i look forward to the future to see what what we can do to help people because that's really what it's about is is helping so i, j I just put a video up um so basically, just tell us what's happening here in this this video, Rob. So that unit there, um, you mount to the exterior of your building, or or any any exterior, or you can mount it outside your patio or outside a window, and you would uh, just like you would plan with your family to have a, an evacuation plan for a fire. You would also have an evacuation plan for your flood or uh, flash floods or tsunamis. And, and, th and that's where you'd talk about where you'd logically put it on your home. And this one here that you see, believe it or not, it's, it's not that easy to find somebody to let you mount one on their home. Uh, okay. for, not to mention you can't flood a yard. So, so um, th that, that simulation there was done into open water uh, for us in, in a field test. And uh, yeah, so far we're, we're, we're gaining some good traction with it. So, and I've been, I've been very impressed. Um, there's so many things like um, you shared the owner's manual, kind of the instruction guide, which is, which is uh, extremely well written. And what, what I mean by that is it's written for people to both interact with before a disaster, but even like during when they're stressed out or chaotic uh, times, they can pull the information out, the, you know, the pictures, the descriptions. And there's this whole premise, too. I shared it with you because it, it instantly rang a bell with me. Um, this is designed in this process called cognitive offloading. And basically what cognitive offloading, in a, a way that most of us are familiar with it, if you go into a place and there's an AED device in a hallway, right? So somebody has a heart attack and you grab the AED, the modern AED uh, once you open it up, it, it tells you what to do. It, it verbally will say, take out, you know, these pads, put them on this spot, watch for the green light, listen for this. And 
so cognitive offloading means you build a lot of the knowledge into the equipment so you don't have to figure it out in the moment. You don't have to sit up there and figure, I have to pull this lever, then I have to put this in, then I have to do this and this and this. Uh, so you've already taken this like extremely intelligent cognitive offloading approach right from the start with your product and you're making it better with every you know revision that you do. And I, I look at that and I marvel because I think that's where it comes out from your uh, ingenuity. You know, like you said, when I was on the, the crab boat, you know, I, I getting the ski goggles made sense, right? Because of whatever. So there's so many things like you just saw that you incorporate it. And I, I'm just, I, I really like that. I respect that. I respect the work that you do, that that approach is there because a lot of people never get there. It's called universal design too. They don't get there. I mean, so, you know, you, you just have a, a really good grasp on how to put this together, realizing that people need to interface with this at the hour that is the absolute worst in their life, right? When things are just going to hell, it's like everything's gone. You know, the story of I've lost all of this stuff. There might be, you know, more. Um, and the last thing on their mind is trying to figure out how to operate this thing. You've taken that away. They just need to get to it and then you know, it easily deploys and it reliably deploys, gets them into a safer situation. So just my, my thought, I'm not, you know, it's, I, I'm not paid to do this or anything like that. It's just, I, it's a very high respect. Um, and the more I've done this, I, I just recognize this in designing. I've shared that with you. So it's really cool. Well, I want to give you some, some kudos uh, because, you know, the, we, we, we got the cognitive offloading directly from you with your, you know, I mean, we, that, that was, it made so much sense. And we, our team hadn't, um, just a bit of a background about our team. Uh, we're all outdoor athletes of a variety and, and, and do know quite a bit about uh, outdoor backcountry, but none of us are flood specialists. I'll say that. Uh, we've become flood specialists over the years. Um, and, and, and still, look to guys who really know their stuff, but there's some cool things happening with our product. I, um, I can't quite quote exactly the companies, but I can say we've aligned ourselves with some search and rescue firms to, to allow people, you know, customers who do get in that. And like, like God forbid anybody's in this circumstance, but in the event that they are, we've incorporated some really good technology to allow them to be found efficiently. And okay. That, that that technology took some thinking and some collaboration, and um, that's what we're proud of the most is, is improving the efficiency of search and rescue in conjunction with giving people an option. I mean, I truly look at this uh, uh, like, I mean, if we look at what's going on in China, I mean, I don't yeah. – I don't sleep much, so I'm up at 4:30 every day. <laughs> that sounds silly, but I am. So, so that's I spend a lot of time doing research, and not all all of it's. Like, I really got to dive into what's real. But there's a lot of problems going on with rising waters, as we all know. There's a culmination of events, you know, all happening, and then you know, China. There's really big water stuff going on, and. I think we just what we need to do is is implement the relationship of urban infrastructure uh, more so with Mother Nature. I mean, and and that's what Tesla's doing, and all these other. I mean, I'm not comparing rooftop life rafts to Tesla by any means, but certainly trying to say that I think there's problems that are yet to be solved. Like, I would hope that this product one day would be as common 
right. a smoke detector. And I'm not trying to pitch that. I really truly mean that. It, it's common sense to me that we should have these people when there's a, it's not un, uncommon for us uh, with the tectonic plates moving. Don't get me going. I'm geeking out, but yeah, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of reasons to have this device. And I know I feel safe having one. I mean, I keep a raft in my truck. Okay. That's where I'm at because I know that I live on the West coast and I know that, you know, the, I'm on the San Andreas fault. Like I've seen, I've and I'm, maybe, maybe I'm jaded, <clears throat> pardon me, because I watch a lot of flood footage. I know the possibilities when it happens, you don't, you don't have very long, the sirens go off. Right. Uh, one of my, my business partners who lives on the West coast of Euclid, which or of Vancouver Island, which he is on the open Pacific. He has woken up to the tsunami bells going off. Oh God. So it's real. Uh, and we want to be prepared. So we, we have a question. Um, so Bacon is asking, are these Lahar rated? And Lahar is basically kind of like a, a mudslide equivalent, right? If I'm interpreting that right, like kind of a mud water situation. That's a great question. Uh, yeah. We aligned ourselves with uh, a world-renowned manufacturer, Zodiac, who was um, blessed to give us a lot of advice and consulting on the type of uh, products to use. And so... Our rafts are polyurethane, and they do—they will withstand a lot of impact. But um, you know, at the end of the day, they—they they are rafts. So, uh, you know, I don't—I don't have a—I don't know if I have a definitive answer for you on that. Yeah, I didn't even know what that term was. I had to look it up. So, <laughs> uh, well, well, like I—I I guess I should—I should reiterate. I know that our rafts are Coast Guard approved, and. Uh, I, I mean, I, I again need to reiterate, I'm not a specialist in all things, uh, but I, I know that I made sure when we designed this thing that by getting the Coast Guard's approval for our marine craft, so the, the same technology that is put on uh, on survival rescue craft, we implemented in, in for our systems. So right. uh, if, that, if that helps answer your question. Right. No, no, I... I... Yeah, I appreciate that you that you took that you know question because I I think it was like you know water mud from a volcanic eruption because like because where you're at I mean like in that Seattle area right the um, was it Mount Mount St Helens was close to well in Washington State and things like that if if there was if there were flows that had um, you know mud and volcanic ash in would would the boat be okay I, I, would the raft be okay I honestly doc. I mean, I've been watching some of those landslides. Um, I, you know what? I, I, I just, uh, I still think there's a lot of evolution to to be had in the technology yeah. and implementation of. I mean, I, I got this gentleman who's a, um, he's a, he specializes in just search and rescue. He's a private consultant for the military, and he's been talking to us, and he's going, you know, there's so much science behind how water comes into a community and where the eddies are, are created. And, and so I, and in Japan, you know, they're a perfect example of, of studying water moving around urban structures fast that we, you know, we, we see it in rivers. We see it in, in rivers that are meandering that all of a sudden cut straight past. And then there's a, there's, there's predictable paths, but there's, I have to constantly say there's so much I don't know 
I know that I, my family uh, doesn't want to be stuck on the roof. And, and as simply as that, that's how this was came to be. And then all six of our teammates said, okay, well, like you know, all of us have kids. What can we do to make this thing more comfortable and um, more right. friendly? So that's, that's, it's uh, I'm sure that I'm sure that it's 10 years from now, I would, I would be proud and, and I would hope to say that it's mind-blowingly different from how it is now. Oh, yeah. And, it, and it, you know, it was just, I, I'm amazed. I mean, these are really, you, you can tell how much people are invested in this discussion by the by the type of questions that are that are coming in. And, and Bacon had shared, you know, just personally, he had lived in a Lahar zone and he was glad after he moved because, you know, what happens when he's living there? Um, because, right, I mean, people aren't thinking about this. Um, I had, I had uh, Katie Pashan on as a guest on um, a show a couple of years ago. She worked with Cajun Navy Relief, talked about a town in I don't know, might have been you know, Texas, Louisiana, during uh, Hurricane Harvey. And what happened is uh, so so Cajun Navy Relief um, is a nonprofit. They they would come in and, and help rescue people out of situations where there'd be rapid flooding. But um, she said the this one community, I don't know, 10 or 15,000 people, the fire department had one boat <laughs> and rising water. So a lot of people are suddenly isolated. They, you know, they haven't planned ahead. They don't have a rooftop life wrap, you know, system or any, any type of, of boat. And, you know, they, so she's getting called, they're dispatching boats rapidly uh, to get in there and to get people off of roofs. But, you know, again, that's a situation that where not everybody makes it out alive. And, um, it, 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 I want to get at this too. You, you're telling me, um, was it Houston, Texas? You had you had recently uh, sold some of your some of the life rafts, and and you you drove them down there and had them all packed in and, and got them down. Was it Houston? We've got uh, uh, an offer going through right now that we have not we have not made a deal, but we've been working closely on a on a on making a deal in Houston and, and I will let you know when that deal goes through, but it's, it's exciting. Yeah. Uh, and it is uh, for a, a housing development that, that is susceptible to flooding. Um, I think, uh, you know, that what, what's, what, what's going to be cool about this product is your ability to customize it. So, you know, like m the one that I have, in my truck that's on my, like the one that I, I custom made has uh, waterproof binoculars and it has a life straw in it. Uh, life straw is okay. a yep. reputable uh, trademarked item. So, you know, quite easily because we're not a big entity, you can get a hold of us. You just an email. Um, currently the, the only people that, uh, that own these things are my family. So, um, we have, like I said, teamed up with a large venture capitalist recently who's who's going to be pretty close to getting us launched, I'd say, within six months. But in the meantime, if you guys, if anybody out there wants one, they'd have to get a hold of me personally. Okay. And I, I just, and I think you can um, post this too, or you can give it to me in private chat. But um, if they did a search and I just put it in uh, Rooftop Life Raft um, plus Vancouver, uh, it'll come up with the website. I'm going to get the website up here in a little bit. Uh, to whoa, wait. Yeah, for sure. Um, we, we are. I mean, we've had, like I said, uh, it, it's for me. It's not about hey, let's let's sell a hundred of them. Let's sell two hundred. Like 
there's so much flooding going on in places that truly like we I've kind of I don't know the ratios so what they look like but the ratios are I'm hoping to for every hundred units I sell, get 10 out to places that can't afford them or, you know, communities where there's, there's, there's homes of folks that can't afford them that need them. And I mean, they they don't break the bank and I don't really have a number that I can put to them because each one's made custom, but I can say that, uh, yeah, I, I just, right now I'm just excited to see what's yet to come. And I believe that we're solving a problem and, I, I hope to see uh, somebody somebody say, "Hey, we want one of those," and that's where we'll go with it. Boy, that is that is terrific. I I mean, I admire that. And and as you indicated, you know, the need is is there. The the solution, um, uh, you know, you're part of uh, putting that together, evolving a product. The custom being able to customize it out for people too, I think, is a huge you know plus. Because um, what you know, once things get really large and, and mass produced, um, we, you lose that ability to, to customize and get down to the unit of this really would work better for you here versus like here, but there's just one, you know, item to pick from. So, yeah, well, I mean, sorry to interrupt you, doc. If uh, you just made me think of something, I mean, if you, if you want your custom, if you want your favorite waterproof, you know, novel, we can put that in there. If you're Bible, <laughs> if yeah. you, know, you know, a flask, we could probably slide a flask in there. <laughs> as long as it's empty i mean so that, that that's kind of the cool thing about us is is that uh if you say hey i've got seven people and um i've got a dog that i really care about and this is the size of the dog we can work with you on making sure that that dog has a an evacuation plan or animal excuse me as well oh yeah that is really cool and you know you're, another part of you know the psychology behind that is um it's something you know kind of goes from what's called a crowd in theory but if people have a couple of comfort items with them um, during a, a time of, of chaos, a time of, of rescue, you know, this is, you know, similar to law enforcement, um, you know, having a stuffed animal in the trunk of a car. So there's a scene of an accident and there's a seven year old girl, you know, they'll, they'll give this, you know, to her. Um, but, you know, the, these types of things thinking ahead, if people have a few of those things um, that, uh, genuinely are going to bring comfort to them during a chaos situation. They might have a functional aspect too, but um, that is, that is again, huge in keeping people calm and giving people a sense of control over themselves and their environment. And, um, you know, again, so, so you're thinking along a line that's really down the road, people don't get into crowd in theory and considerations in uh, chaos engineering Um Often they just kind of just don't even get there, but it's it's really again further down the road thinking. It's it's a high level of knowing. Yeah, we 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 know that this is a chaotic situation. We want to provide people with with a, a few things that they've picked out ahead of time that they can customize, which are going to make them feel better while they're you know in the raft awaiting you know transport to you know, whatever it is, or, or the rescue team comes to get them. So these, I mean, there's so many things, and again, we'll get into this during, during the show, but there are these things that I pick up on that I'm like, Oh, like you thought about this. And just most people don't like 98% of the people just don't think about these things, but yet they're very impactful, right? The cognitive offloading, um, you, you, the way that you've designed these things that you're getting qualitative input from people that you're, you're you know, customizing. There's just so many things like to just come together and I'm like, this is just really good. Like even, let's just even take the product out of it. Um, 
Rob, if we just looked at how you did this, like you, you just have done it in a, a, a path which other people should follow. And I think maybe, the, you know, as you talked about in the show, you know, um, the things that you've done earlier in life and maybe the other teammates, you know, that, that you're working with now, the other, the other people, um, maybe their experiences all come together to, to start form forming some of that. Cause I, I don't, I, I'm just, I don't think I've, I'd see it otherwise. Um, cause a lot of people jump into things and they don't have that previous experience and kind of pull that tacit knowledge that really makes an awesome, cool product that people can interface with. And yeah, I'm going to break it down at some point, but Again, I just I work with so many different you know people, and, and I just observe so many different things that that what you what you've done just stands out in in just so many levels. So I'm really, and Thanks. I'll just continue to give the kudos to it because it should those those kudos should be given when someone genuinely wants to create something that is going to lead to a safer environment and then does it in a way that is really intelligent, really has intelligent design to it. It's it's cool. Thank you. I mean, that you know that 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 means so much to me uh and i i just yeah without getting passionate about it it means a lot to me to have a guy with your credentials uh recognize that and i've been telling my team my father i'm not sure if you got an email from him or not but he's been a big supporter of this uh he's travis is his name he's 16 uh, he's gonna get mad at me if he's listening <laughs> 67 Six, turning 68 and he won't care about that that's besides the point my point is is he he he's a very intelligent man and, and follows you and then said you know that doctor he's so I, I you know thank you very much for being such a supporter of us and giving your input willingly and and, and we take it and i take it back to my team even though you haven't met them and, and we're all very thankful good hey well I, I i appreciate i appreciate that and um what i'm going to do is is do a summary um, of, of what we just talked about and then how people can, can get a hold of you. And then uh, we'll let all the good folks here in, in the chat, um, you know, start to turn in for the night, depending upon where they're at. If they're over in Germany, I think they're just getting up in the morning. But uh, so, hey, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in to the Safety Doc podcast. And a shout out um, to our guest, uh, Rob Travis uh, Cheney. We spent a lot of time talking about uh, his experiences as an Alaskan uh, crab uh, boater and, you know, 122 day stint, uh, just, just this, this crazy stuff, right? I mean, how, he, he, these stories you just don't hear about. Um, and, and then, you know, talking about being a pro snowboarder, um, the, working in, in concrete business, and, and then talking now about uh, survival roof taf, life raft systems, just a really fascinating um, discussion and and two, it's it's one of those discussions. Um, you're right. I mean, when we talk about adrenaline and and you know what it's like to live a life and and maybe some of the consequences how you have to to rebalance back from that. But but yeah, there's been so much um, you know terrific uh, feedback from here. Hey, Joe Dolio from our friend over in Michigan, Joe, where they have a lot of water, Lake Michigan. So Joe. So it's a good thing. Stay safe, man. Here in Wisconsin, I got Lake Superior right above me too. If that thing drains out, I'm in big trouble. But um, and, and uh, hey, Bacon Maldito said, "I am going to throw you on my list of talking about you, um, Rob, on my sponsors along with Doc." So Bacon has a very uh, popular show, um, and he can 
um, I think it's the goddamn bacon.com bacon Maldito. Um, but yeah, bacon. So that's really, that's really a cool thing. So thanks for sure. Thank you. Doing that. Um, yeah. Um, and, and bacon, you know, when you talk about survival, so, uh, bacon very much is from a survival mindset and actually was able to get inside of the temporary autonomous zone in Seattle because of the work that he does. He was given access inside and outside of that zone and he was able to share some experiences and share some photos. Um, but I, I, I know everything that you've talked about is very aligned to a lot of the things that, that Bacon does. We have a number of folks, too, I mean, between uh, Joe and, and Bacon, um, you know, who have extensive uh, martial arts experience. And again, I think this all kind of blends into, a, a, you know, a, a global survival mindset. So I know it's late, but hey, if you have a friend, tell them about this book. Um, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America. It's really a book about chaos management. First chapter, how thinking about a bagel can get you through the worst day of your life. Interesting, right now I'm working with a publisher. Yesterday, it was weird, Sunday, we, we were talking about two books. And today it went back to consolidating two books into one book. Um, but I don't know where it will be tomorrow. But I have another book coming out, The Velocity of Information. And um, possibly a... a, a third book unless that gets rolled into the second book but um so everybody thank you so much hit that subscribe if you haven't already hit the thumbs up on the show i appreciate that um and looking you know ahead again we are going to have um we're going to have rob back on on the show and we're going to really focus in on what it's like to go from scratch and and to build these systems to test you know these these systems um it kind of go through the the areas that that just case study some you know rapid developments of hey oh my god you know like this this massive area that they didn't think was going to flood flooded here was here were the consequences here's what could have been different if you would have had um you know for example a life raft different survival equipment with you things we, we just as you like you know you you had the life or the straw right where you can you know purify water uh, by drinking through a straw just things people don't think about until it's after the fact and it's like well, I don't, you know, what do I do now? So again, getting people to think ahead. So any, uh, how can people um, contact you, learn more about your work? Oh, um, yeah, they, they can hit me up just by emailing rooftopliferafts at gmail.com. Uh, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter and I respond immediately usually because uh, lately with, I got a newborn at home, so I'm probably averaging four hours of sleep a night. <laughs> so yeah, I'm always open to talk to anybody about uh, survival or anything intriguing, in fact. So, yeah, reach out, and thanks for having me. Okay. Hey, I appreciate it. Well, um, take care, Rob, and we will look forward to having you back on the show. So I, I really appreciate it. Thanks, buddy. Thank you, Doc. Cheers. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.